0: Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, Lulu here. Whether we are romping through science, music, politics, technology, or feelings, we seek to leave you seeing the world anew. Radiolab adventures right on the edge of what we think we know, wherever you get podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to this special feed, The Sound of Pride, Stonewall at 50. I'm Tobin Lowe, co-host of Nancy. If you like what you hear, you can find more coverage from WNYC by visiting wnyc.org slash stonewall50. And if you love these episodes as much as we do, we encourage you to subscribe to all of these great podcasts and share your favorites with your friends. Okay, Kath, what is up next? Up next, an episode from the New Yorker Radio Hour. The novelist Edmund White has been at the center of gay fiction since the 1970s. His book, A Boy's Own Story, was the first widely read coming out novel in America, and he's written many novels since, along with four books of memoirs, collections of essays, a play, and biographies of Marcel Proust and Jean Genet. This spring, at the age of 76, White will publish Our Young Man, his 13th novel. The New Yorker's Josh Rothman sat down to talk with him about it. Okay, good. So I, I want to call you Professor White, but I think I should call you Edmund. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I wanted to talk to Ed for a number of reasons. One is, you know, he's actually had a huge influence on me as a as a person and a writer. I met Edmund because he was my creative writing teacher in college. I had never heard of him, you know, before I had him as a teacher. I had just never read anything like his books. As a straight man reading them um, you do have a little bit of envy i mean it's you you envy the you know sexual freedom the excitement and also just the difference the one thing that ed is famous for is that he's unapologetic about loving gay culture as it existed pre-aids his new novel uh, which is called our young man is uh, about a male model and a sort of ageless male model who never gets older and he lives a life like frozen in time.
1: In this book, Our Young Man, I w- was writing it right after, well, during and right after a heart attack where I was in the hospital for 40 days and couldn't walk or talk, but I could still scribble. And I think I was trying to write about a more glamorous period. In the past, that would cheer me up. I didn't want to write about old people dying like myself. I mean, all of writing, I think, is made up of two elements. One is um, mimesis, where you're imitating actual life experiences. And the other part is fantasy, where you're imagining another world, another life. And I think there's always has to be a balance between those two. But uh, in this one, I think I tip more toward the fantasy end of the spectrum. <laughs>
0: um, I basically feel like I know you very well after all of these years of reading you. Uh, yeah. Um, do you write in part to be known by people?
1: Well, when I first started writing autobiographical fiction, nobody's like me couldn't write autobiographies. You had to be the winner of the Battle of Iwo Jima or something to write a, a memoir in writing about sex in such a frank way was there any did what was your feeling in doing that well i felt rather defiant about it i still feel this that it's uh, one of the most important parts of human experience it's where people actually live in their minds and that it's remarkable how little it gets written about i always say that straight writers Straight male writers can't write about it because their wives would be angry. <laughs> uh, uh, and gays had a kind of freedom, now less so because they're all married. But. Right. I mean, wh- what do you think about
0: the—so uh, I'm 36. So I'm too old to be involved in the sort of millennial world of Snapchat and sexting and things like that. But there does seem to be like a casualness, or at least theoretically there's supposed to be a casualness about sex in the sort of digital social media
1: universe. I mean, do, do you have any consciousness of that? Or Oh, yeah. You know? I mean, I had dinner last night with a friend who's 24 and very handsome and who's always on uh, grinder, But I think he's always kind of slightly disappointed because people are so dumb. I mean, he's the biggest <laughs> reader I know, and, and no one can keep up with him. Mm-hmm. So the new novel... It's the life of a of a male model
0: named Guy who—he's an aperture into a world of glamour. He's so good-looking, so beautiful that it's almost like he doesn't realize what is happening around him or, or what effect he's having on people.
1: I think the burdens of being beautiful are something people don't talk about too much, but uh, it's something that's always interested me. Could I convince you to read a passage from the book? Sure, from the absolutely. I, I, I marked a beginning. Um— His first weekend on Fire Island with Pierre-Georges, who turned out to be unexpectedly hairy in a swimsuit, Guy slowly descended the wooden stairs from the dunes to the beach, wearing nothing but a tight white swimsuit and sunglasses. And a dozen men looked up from their towels at him, and he was afraid he might faint. He thought to himself, I'll never be this perfect again, an idea that made him sad. Something about being beautiful induced melancholy in Guy. He was aware of how brief his perfection would be, and then sneered at himself for being so narcissistic. He and Pierre-Georges took a public speedboat at midnight from the grove to the pines with a bunch of overexcited guys, and they all rushed into the sandpiper. He was stoned and taller than most of the other men, and as he stared out over them, he experienced experienced a distinctly Buddhist feeling of evanescence. He looked out over the shirtless, muscled, tanned men and realized that right here on this disco floor there was such a concentration of fashion, slimming, money, bleaching, plastic surgery, psychotherapy, and all for naught. In a few years, they'd all be old walruses, and then a few more dead. Thank you. I mean, when I first started to read you as an
0: 18-year-old straight guy uh, who had mostly read novels by straight men, I had just never read anything about uh, male beauty. Like that, the vocabulary of beauty had just never been applied to men, and it, it changed my view of the world. I mean it changed the way that I saw myself and other, other men too. H- how does beauty work in, in gay culture, gay life, and, and how has it changed over, over time?
1: How's the- well, when I was young, uh, the only thing to be was a beautiful boy in gay life. And then when you turned 30, your friends would have a funeral for you because your life was over. But there was a, a real dichotomy of the men and the boys. The boys were the objects of desire and the men were the predators <laughs> and uh, who had to pay money usually to go to bed with the boys. But uh, with gay liberation, everything changed, and suddenly the new ideal was to be 35 years old with a mustache and to have a lover and adopt a Korean daughter. And there was a kind of emphasis on being macho and working out at the gym. I mean, before the gym, you had to be beautiful, born beautiful. But after the gym, you could work out and become beautiful. <laughs> so, you know, when I think about, sometimes if I'm trying to describe what your books
0: are about to people, I'll say they're they're about love. They're love stories. A lot of your novels are love stories. But they're not like Jane Austen. They don't end at the moment of, of love. They kind of continue into time. Do you think of yourself as a romantic Person or someone? Yeah, you know. yeah
1: I do. Uh, uh, I think. Uh, yeah, I, I made everybody furious when, during the AIDS year when I said, "Well, some things are worth dying for." Yeah. um uh, But oh, <laughs> people didn't want to hear that. Uh, yeah. But uh Foucault used to say that for straight people, courtship was the important thing, and it led up to marriage or the consummation of sex somehow, and that. Uh, for gay people, the most romantic moment was putting your trick whom you just had sex with in a cab, sending him uptown, mm-hmm. and uh, that it, when you were alone and could muse about what the whole thing was like or, and replay it in your mind, that was more romantic than the courtship. Yeah. You know, gay life has changed so much, and as a
0: novelist, the aesthetic possibilities of it have changed. I mean, you still do describe gay life as it existed in the past, Um but once it meant one thing to write about it. Now it means something different. Uh-huh. Has something been lost or something gained in that in that comfort or
1: openness? or The fact that so many people are able to pass now as straight is fruitful, I think, for a novelist. Yeah, yeah, You know, because you could have a character who you'd have to read two-thirds of the book before you discovered he was gay. Yeah. I don't know. Like, my students are so strange. Uh, <laughs> like, half of them are... Uh, Christian and wear purity rings and um, the other half are hooking up every day (laughs) and and going to these drunken routes. Like I have a terrible gaydar these days and I can never tell who's gay and gay students of mine have to wear a t-shirt saying I am gay.
0: (laughs) They don't really do that. They did.
1: Uh, One of them did. Otherwise I don't get it.
0: Thanks so much for listening to this special feed, The Sound of Pride, Stonewall at 50. If you like what you hear, you can find more coverage from WNYC by visiting wnyc.org stonewall50.